I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. to episode 38 of The Highland, the pop culture and current affairs podcast brought to you by journalists Pandora Sykes and Dolly Alderton. So Dolly, what's been going on with you this week? First of all, I'd like to issue an apology. I waxed lyrical about The Marvellous Miss Maisel. Uh, so uh, yes, you, you've got your platforms mixed up. And I'm very embarrassed to say it's an Amazon Prime show. And that is embarrassing actually, because they are very different. And they've gone into liquidation now since you did that. <laughs> I'm so sorry, it's my cross to carry now for life. So anyway, you should watch that programme and it's on Amazon Prime. I have been pretty busy prepping and recovering from Pretendmas. Would you, I genuinely think that was probably on the same scale of stress as me moving house. Oh my God. Because I know how seriously you take. I a- saw the Instagram stories. 2am making that food the night before. Then up with the lark, getting it all prepped. It was the best day of my life though. It was so good. It was so good. Um, so, yeah, no, it was really, really fun. Um, but I definitely eked out pretend it was too long, so we were kind of drinking and eating all day, and then I went out dancing and drank tequila with sort of a massive roast dinner sloshing around in me. It's a new thing, tequila. It is, isn't it? Everyone stinks of it. Oh, yes, you said you went to a party recently and everyone just... At the British Fashion Awards, yes, everyone on my table was drinking tequila, and you really noticed the... It's like paint stripper. How's this happened? It's like how um, Aperol Spritz became a thing. Well, with tequila, I think it started in New York because my friends in New York started drinking it about 18 months ago because they believe all that bullshit about agave having healing properties. And also tequila soda is low calorie. I see. Oh, tequila soda, that must be horrible. I think it probably is. But then I think vodka soda is disgusting too. I don't sip a tequila. I just knock it back in like a student club night way. Oh, so you have shots of tequila? That's what I was doing on Saturday. Oh, yeah, yeah no, you're not new style. Which I think you'll agree style. was very Christmassy of me. You are old style. Um, so, yes, that was Saturday. But I have been watching and listening to some great stuff. I went and saw a screening of Lady Bird, which is Greta Gerwig's directorial debut, which you are just going to adore. You're going to love it. And the fact as well that you're having a daughter, I think, will bring it even more poignancy for and you. It's, and it's not got that sort of manic pixie dream girl quality about it. Well, do you know what? It's sort of... It's is it screwball? It's a little screwball, but Greta Gerwig is so known for that trope. It's a really clever film, and I think that that young character, she's a 17-year-old girl, the protagonist, called Ladybird. She kind of examines and inverts and makes a pastiche of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl thing because Ladybird wants to be a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Right. So it's almost like a fun kind of self-reflective nod on the whole mumblecore, that kind of area of cinema. 
it's just such uncharted territory, I think, the relationship between mother and daughter, and it's so raw and painful. She said on that Fresh Air podcast, didn't she, the one where they get into that whole sort of Woody Allen hullabaloo? Yes. She says that the woman interviewing her says, why did she choose to be called Ladybird? And Greta Gerwig just says, well, it's a rejection of the entire identity that her mother has created for her. And actually, in a completely different way... This reminded me slightly of most members of my family who insist on calling me by my husband's surname, even though I've never taken it, haven't changed it anywhere, written about how I haven't taken it. It doesn't upset me, but I find it very interesting that there is, in a family, I think there is an identity that you can't be malleable with it. No, no. Not with the nomenclature. What are your parents like about you calling yourself Dolly? Well, I've asked them that a few times because I know... Because your mum calls you Hanny. Yeah, and I know how... um, painstakingly they chose my name I was actually originally Dodie and then my dad put his foot down That's and changed got a bit, it to you'd, um, be linked forever with uh, Al Fire. Yes. I know it would have been terrible but I've asked them I said do you mind that this is kind of a nickname that stuck and then became a nom de plume and now it's kind of the name that every single person calls me only my family call me Hannah now and they said, no, not at all. My, but my parents are very relaxed about that stuff. I don't think they'd be precious about that. What about if you want to start calling yourself Ladybird? It's so funny. As I watched it, I was like, I wonder if they think when I was 16 and I was like, everyone's calling me Dolly. I wondered if they thought she's doing a bit of a Ladybird. You know, that like it might I was, have been a phase. Like I might have been doing a rejection of, you know, this is my personality. Lots of my friends did that when they yeah. were younger. They, they kind of road tested their middle name as their first name and it sort of stuck for a term and then everyone went on summer holidays and forgot. I remember as a teenager, and this is something that they do so well in Ladybird. I hated being a teenager so vehemently. And I remember as a teenager thinking, I have so little control and power over my life. I can't drive. I can't earn money. I can't have sex. I can't drink. I can't have a job. I can't have anything of my own, my own flat so what can I do that makes me feel like I'm in charge of my own life so I wonder if maybe it was that anyway going away from my psychoanalysis and back to Ladybird. it's a brilliant film it's had a 100% score on Rotten Tomatoes which I've is never like, seen that has broken all records apparently yeah it's Isn't really it worth how seeing people, Rotten Tomatoes started out as kind of a bit of the sort of farcical satirical riposte IMDb now people go to Rotten Tomatoes over IMDb don't they yeah and it's actually when you go onto Wikipedia to look at the reception of a film the first thing they say is Rotten Tomatoes because the idea was obviously that it was films that were shit because mm, that's what Rotten I recall Tomatoes. yeah yeah it must have um, evolved yeah and that's okay they're allowed to we'll give them that <laughs> so yeah beautiful film would encourage everyone to go see it I've discovered the grief cast by Carrie Ad Lloyd I'd listened to one she episode before. about that when we went to the Guilty Feminist. Yes. I listened to one ages ago and I think I was feeling sad about a loss of mine. So I think I found it too difficult. But someone messaged me. I was looking for some podcasts and they said, try... You are a podcast bin. I'm a pod- podcat. You are a podcat. Um, they said, try listening to Griefcast. And this woman said to me, I lost my mother recently and it was the thing that carried me through. So I went and listened to Adam Buxton's, actually, as the first one that I listened to. And it is so truthful and poignant and moving and funny. And it captures the chaos and the catatonic sadness and the hysteria and madness of of death. And it's, I really think that if I had listened to it during periods of grief, it would have really helped me. So Adam Buxton talks about his father, who passed away a couple of years ago. Well, it was only very recent when he did the recording, and it's just a really great 
episode and I'm really looking forward to listening to the whole series. You might also enjoy actually on that note Esther Perel has done live recordings of her therapist yes. sessions. Yeah. I listened to one between a husband and wife who couldn't have a baby and they're real life therapy sessions. It actually wasn't particularly for me. I think it might be more for you. Mm. you I love Esther Pratt. And also I'm just so nosy. I love hearing about other well, people's I'm relationships. I'm very nosy. I'm very nosy. And I also love the idea of knowing someone's innermost yes. secrets. Yes, me too. Awful confession. Which is why we're journalists. But it didn't, it didn't grab me that podcast. But it might, I'd, I'd be interested to see what you thought of it. Okay, I'll listen to that and get back to you next week. I also listened to James Franco on WTF. He's a strange man, isn't he? Oh, my God. he it, He's not as strange as I thought he was. So in my head, I'm not really familiar with his work or him as an actor. But in my head, I always thought, he's a kind of kook. He's got these nutty things that he does. He's a Joaquin Phoenix, isn't he? Or is he not as nuts as Joaquin? He's really not. And actually, it's a really long conversation between him and Mark Maron. And it starts from a very interesting place because they had done a live podcast uh, record for WTF about a year before at a film festival and they'd hated each other and not got on well at all and admitted it to and one they another. first talk they talk about that as a starting point and why they both kind of rubbed up against each other the wrong way which was really interesting and um He's just a fascinating guy, James Franco. He's, He's insanely intelligent, isn't he? Yeah, so he found fame as an actor and he couldn't handle it, so he went back to school. And then I think he's still in school now. I think he's doing multiple, like, quite hardcore yeah. sort of university courses. But there's more than that. There's his, his CV is really mad. I was looking at it the other day. Yeah, there's this bit that I found so interesting that I didn't know about. Please forgive me, listeners, if this is common knowledge. I didn't know this. He is very immersive in his acting process and he is kind of interested in the whole method acting thing. Mm. And he, I can't remember exactly why, I think he was playing a character who'd been in a soap or for some reason he wanted to know what being in a soap was like. So he got in touch with General Hospital, which in America is like... It's well, it's the, like ER was when yeah, George Clooney was Yeah, but I mean, it. it's, even, it's even more naff. It's like doctors over here, like Holby City. And he applied, said, I would like to have a part. And he did nearly 30 episodes in this thing. So it's like, can you imagine? It's like Colin Firth or Bill Nye kind of just popping up in Coronation I Street. These are interesting parallels with James I know, I was Franco. trying to think of someone who's like a serious English actor. <laughs> Tom Hardy, maybe. Colin Firth. Colin Firth. <laughs> Tom Hardy appearing in, like, Nigel Holby City. Nigel Havers. <laughs> who, I, who I refer to way too much in all of my writing. So, anyway, that was very interesting. And then the final thing that I wanted to talk about is Sophie Hagen, who was the co-host mm-hmm. of The Guilty Feminist in its earlier years. She's a very, very funny Danish comedian. I really love her work. She's done this podcast. It's called Made of Human, and she interviews people to kind of investigate the human condition and the fragility of humans and why we are the way we are. Um, That's very interesting. It's so good. And there's one particular episode that I've now listened to twice it was so good with Joe Brand, who's a comedian who I love. Sorry to be a broken record. Her Desert Island Discs is very, very good. And there's the whole thing's really interesting. She talks about how before she went into comedy, she worked in a psych- psychiatric unit of a hospital in an emergency ward. And she talks about what she learned about humans 
from doing that job. She talks about how she was as a teenager. She was a runaway from home. She had a heroin addict boyfriend. She talks about her weight. It's just a really, really good podcast episode. Really good conversation. She's got a life experience to mine. She really has. And there's a section that she says at the end that I found very true and moving that I'd like to insert here where Sophie Hagen says to her if you could go into the room where you have just been born and hold baby Joe Brand in your arms and say one thing to her what would you say I would say work very hard on your friendships because in the long run they are what really count in a way because they sort of anchor you all through the stages of your life you have children then they grow up and leave home you get married maybe you stay in that marriage but it probably changes by its very nature but with friends a good friend for life there's just nothing like it so I would say work very hard on it and also give them a bit of slack if they're annoying because everyone's friends are annoying now and then I'm annoying now and then I know it's hard to believe uh, but I am really annoying you you know but friendships are just so important to me some great recommendations I'm definitely going to check out James Franco so as my life is in boxes I haven't done a huge amount of reading except for a bit of The Fallout by Sadie Jones which isn't particularly new book but I am loving that already I have, however, read some brilliant journalism this week. Firstly, Terry White on women's refuges, a third of which are facing closure in the UK. This is totally devastating. And I tweeted recently, actually, that I don't believe enough is being written about the need for refuges for battered and or vulnerable women and children. Mm. And Terry's piece, therefore, struck a lot of chords with a lot of people. Terry's the editor of Empire magazine, and she writes for The Pull about how she escaped to a women's refuge with her mum to escape a violent boyfriend of her mum's who we gather is not the first violent boyfriend Mm. that Terry has encountered um, when she was a young child and this is a little excerpt so our turn to go home came six weeks after that unremarkable day when news arrived that he'd left our home for good that he'd realised it was over one day soon after we'd returned the second paving slab rocking more gently now a neighbour shouted over we would hear you all screaming we thought about calling the police but we didn't want to interfere We didn't want to interfere. We didn't want to interfere. We're not going to interfere. I'm here to tell you that a lack of interference can kill. Mm. That neighbour may have not felt able, inclined or otherwise to intervene, but I have sent up a silent prayer of thanks to someone or anyone on many nights that our first shimmer of good luck meant we were given a room in a refuge, that we were saved. I've played the alternative scenario in my head a hundred times or more. At best, the beatings continue for a while longer before we get another opportunity to leave. The worst, he kills my mum. Her death is a bleak reality I could face were I a child today. So it's just, it's a wonderful story. And I actually emailed um, Terry and she said it felt like a layer of her skin had been ripped off. But that she felt like the kind of catharsis, but also just the putting it into, you know, the public domain. How hopefully be the payoff. And how useful that is. But my heart broke reading it. And I really commend her bravery and vulnerability in sharing something so personal. It's the first 
personal story I'd read about a woman's refuge, actually. Mm. The news stories, as I said, had not been multiple, if anything, the opposite. And they'd all been quite abstract. That's you know, it. I um, don't know anyone who grew up in a women's refuge. No. Um, I, I feel deeply about it, but I, I'm not knowledgeable at grassroots about it. So I think what Terry does is she brings that story to us who are too privileged to ever have known anyone until we read Terry's story, who had experienced that upbringing. And bring faces to it and feelings to it. Exactly, faces and feelings. I've also been left really upset by a news story this week. In fact, I actually can't stop thinking about it. I'm sure many of you listening will also be familiar with it because it's just horrible. So a woman was run over and killed by four cars in a row, none of which stopped whilst walking across a pedestrian crossing in Tulse Hill earlier this week. Have you seen that story? I haven't. So four cars, well, two vans and two cars, all hit her one after another while she was walking across a pedestrian crossing and not one stopped to see if she was alright, which she wasn't. She died. And I just cannot believe the probability of four ethically redundant people driving in a row. I just, it honestly, I am left reeling that four cars in a row could all contain people who had no moral compass and no yeah. regard for the value yeah. of life. It just, I actually tweeted, what are the chances of having four see you next Tuesdays driving in a row? And so many people tweet about being like, I mean, clearly quite high. Yeah, it does make you sort of lose faith a bit I just don't know how Mm. it's possible Mm. but in lighter news because this is the high low and there is always a lighter story to help us deal with the really vile stories in the world the second piece of journalism that I recommend from this week aka my favourite story of 2017 which I tweeted I didn't get to read it tell me what it is it was on Vice and it's about a woman who made her imaginary garden shed restaurant the number one rated restaurant on TripAdvisor it's completely improbable I'll share the link but totally understandable because she explains at every single step how she did it so Ubar Butler takes you pictorially and narratively through the entire bizarre and brilliant story which includes listing the food in her restaurant which is called the shed at Dulwich um, and sharing pictures of the food which she shows the snapshot of what you would see on TripAdvisor and then she scales out and you can see that it's never food. It's Gillette shaving foam or, for example, what looks like a chicken breast is actually her heel, which is oh resting God, on a plate. Hilarious. She built the shed itself in her garden and you see pictures of her building it and acquiring chickens. And then for the first opening night, she spent £31 on ingredients from Iceland. <laughs> oh, wait, were there ever any customers? Yes. What's even more insane is after customers came, she managed to stay in the top spot for two weeks which just shows what modern society will do for hype. It's completely insane. Please, everyone, read it. It's not only very funny, it's very, very clever. Mm, and it also probably says a lot about trends and the Emperor's New Clothes. Oh, I mean, the, the shed internet. in Dulwich. And, that yeah, tells you everything you exactly. need to know. I'm really behind, I know, but I am completely hooked on the People versus O.J. Simpson. Oh, American Crime Story on Netflix. Show. How did it take me so long to get to it? Because you watched it, so didn't you? so good. David Schwimmer is sublime as the readiest, most pathetic best friend who just can't quite abandon the celebrity, mm. even when he knows his friend did it. Have you seen the compilation of him on YouTube calling O.J. Simpson juice? No. It's just over and over again. Juice, juice, juice. juice. The general so consensus is that he did it from that from that show isn't it yeah. like they think that show is not being ambiguous about whether or not they think he did it yeah and that man Robert Kardashian 
I went obviously on like a Wikipedia Robert Kardashian really hole after I watched that incredibly hammy but incredibly compelling show. Well, I mean, amazing characters in it, full stop. But he said, uh, he was quoted of saying, I think he probably did it years after. Because afterwards. I feel like the show makes no bones about the fact that he very obviously did it. But I don't know if that's because I think he did it. I'm getting quite nervy about saying all this, but OJ Simpson's not listening, is he? We're all right, Charlie, aren't we? It also shows how jurors react to different people, um, empathise with different emotions. You know, there's this really poignant, but you can see why he says it, this really poignant bit where someone says to Marsha, who's the prosecutor... Played brilliantly. Played brilliantly. You might want to soften your lip. You might want to soften your hairstyle, stop wearing pantsuits, smile a bit. And she's livid because it's... of course, it's very sexist, but it's also quite practical advice because an imaginary jury's just come back and none of the women empathise with her. Mm. None of the women mm. um, are responding to her emotionally, which, again, gets us into a whole quagmire about whether or not people are, you know, sent down for their crimes or because of how persuasive you find yes. the prosecutor or the defendant. Anyway, I'm really, really enjoying that. I'm also watching a whole host of complete crap on Netflix, which I can't even tell you what I'm watching. But if you are looking for really light-hearted rubbish, my God, Netflix has it in spades. There's so many crap series on there. Um, on a complete side note, did you see that Harry Styles stepped in to host The Late Late Show with James Corden after no. James's wife went into labour two hours before the show so I'm riveted by this is he going to go into presenting is he going to be the new Jack Whitehall he doesn't ever seem I haven't watched masses of Harry Styles on camera but he never seems that relaxed he went down very well on the late show with James Corden watch this space we had some funny emails for some readers Dolly do you want to kick us off I listened to episode 37 of your splendid podcast and upon your mention of the word gusset, I wish to bring to your attention to something I thought you might like. It's a piece of graffiti written in very big letters that, for many years, graced the side of a building between London Bridge and Waterloo East. Us South East Londoners fondly remember seeing it on the train route into London. Sadly, the daubing has since gone, but the memories remain. I bring you Big Dave's gusset, which we will post the picture on the High Lows Twitter. There's a bit of a mystery around the identity of Big Dave or what the story is behind the celebrated gusset. But I guess that's part of the joy of Big Dave's gusset, simply in its very existence. Photos attached. (laughs) Thanks, Alice. We will tweet the picture. And if anyone knows who Dave is or his gusset, get in touch. We also received a tale of frustration from Laurie. I was wondering if you could help me with a reoccurring issue I'm having at work. As my name is unisex, it's sometimes difficult to judge by email, if you've never met me before, as to whether I am male or female. One of my colleagues, who I have not yet met, keeps referring to me as fella. He repeatedly signs his emails off as, Cheers, fella. Much appreciated, fella. And when you get a chance, fella. I am yet to correct him, as I am not sure how to address the subject, without sending a photograph of my face and a pissed-off note saying, I am a woman dipstick. Regardless of whether I am male or female, I find this really derogatory and a rude way of addressing someone you've never met. What do you think I should do? So obviously this is quite comical. I don't actually think that Laurie's a particularly unisex name, but parking that, um, I don't think you need to send a pissed-off note saying, I am a woman dipstick, although I can understand why fella. so random. It's It's like the 80s. I understand why fella's annoying you. I just think reply and be like, by the way, Dave, just to let you know, I'm actually a woman. Um, Such a strange then, email to have to he send. Might, he, might, he might then start responding with... Um, bird. Babe or something. All right, bird. But I wouldn't let it bother you. 
Or you could do a Mel Gibson in What Women Want and pretend you are a man and then get all the intel of how men talk to each other. You could also do that. (laughs) Support for the Hilo comes from Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From search to email and maps and beyond, Google has a history of questioning the norm and finding a better way. Each week we will do a curiosity challenge in which Dolly or I pose a question to one another encompassing the Hilo's ethos of covering all things from the personal to the philosophical to the surreal. This week, Dolly, my question to you in light of Time magazine's Person of the Year, who is your Person of the Year? Now someone suggested this on Twitter and I have to say I agree with them. For me, the overlooked and unsung hero of 2017 has to be Marion from the Robert Kelly BBC interview. (laughs) You will probably remember the story. An American academic was interviewed live on the BBC about South Korea from his home when his young daughter Marion came into the study doing a very peppy little walk. She became a star overnight, quite rightly, and I do believe she should have been Time's Person of the Year. Her rakish manner to me... (laughs) represents how we should all walk through life, particularly in these uncertain times. You described yourself as Marion, didn't you? And me as the harried mother coming in to grab her. No, you told me I was the baby in The Walker. Like the Boris Johnson, in. the Boris Johnson baby. And, oh, and I'm the mother. You're the harassed you to be the nanny. Yes, exactly. <laughs> You're so obsessed with Marion. I love her. If you see your person of the year out and about, don't forget to snap them with a Google Pixel Two. We shared another picture from our Google Pixel Two series, shot a few months ago at the Savoy Hotel on our Instagram account. So if you want to see Pandora and I in the nude, head on over. The Google Pixel 2 has the world's best smartphone camera, giving you the very best ever pictures, whether it's a sunny day or a starry night. Thank you very much to our pretty partner, Google Pixel 2. It's now time for the top line, read by Dolly Hannah Alderton. Do we want another festive tune? Let's have another festive tune. Yeah, we had Dave last week, so it's CJ's turn to get the festive out. is the top line. A project called Clitorosity has been taking the world by storm as 92 chalk drawings of the clitoris have popped up across the states, UK and Denmark. The brainchild of 24-year-old Laura Kingsley, there are 80 contributors who hope to get people having frank conversations about female pleasure. You can follow the collective at Clitorosity. A baby born with her heart outside of her body has received surgery to put her heart back into her chest. Vanellope Wilkins was born three weeks ago via caesarean without a chest bone and is the first baby in the UK to ever survive this condition. New mothers could be given a £200 incentive to breastfeed following a trial conducted by Public Health England. More than 10,000 women took part in the trial and breastfeeding rose by 6%. A study has revealed that 90% of the world's plastic waste is carried by just 10 rivers in Africa, India and China. The Nile, the Ganges and the Yangtze are among the culprits due to their long banks. The Yangtze carries up to 1.5 million tonnes of plastic into the ocean every year, compared to the 18 tonnes from the Thames. Michael Gove has announced that foreign aid cash will be used to tackle the impact of the clog on marine life. 
Five people have been arrested on suspicion of murder after a house fire in Salford killed three children earlier this week and left the mother and three-year-old in critical condition. The three men and two women are aged between 18 and 24. A backlash has begun after a young boy in the States shared a video about how he was being bullied about his nose. The video of Keaton Jones has had over 20 million views since his mother shared it on Friday. But Kimberly Jones now faces accusations of child exploitation after revealing that the $57,000 raised by GoFundMe page will be spent on Christmas presents. Pictures have also surfaced of the family with Confederate flags. Relationships charity Relate has recently revealed that single men feel more pressure to find a partner than their female counterparts, with over 70% of single men claiming that they feel significant pressure to couple up compared to 58% of single women. Results reveal that younger respondents were also more likely to report feeling pressure to find a relationship than older ones. The world's first biodegradable pregnancy test will be on shelves in 2018. The test, called Leah, which translates as bearer of good news, works like a standard pregnancy test, except it can also be flushed down the loo after use. London's Euston station will be turned into a shelter for the homeless on Christmas Day. The station will be filled with decorations and tables set for a full festive dinner on the 25th of December. Rail workers and charity staff will serve food to 200 rough sleepers invited to the event. 21-year-old Egyptian pop singer Shaima Ahmed, who goes professionally by Shaima, has been jailed for two years and fined £10,000 for eating fruit in a suggestive way in her music video. The video features the singer eating an apple and a banana in her underwear in front of a classroom of young men and Shaima has been accused of inciting debauchery. And that was the top line. That's awful about Shima Ahmed. So she's sort of a Miley Cyrus type and she's mm. been jailed for two years. I'm really torn on the breastfeeding incentive. You know, breastfeeding sounds fucking tough, as I'm soon to discover. And I love the idea of women being rewarded for it. But equally, we do have an issue with breastfeeding sort of tyranny here. Definitely. Where this idea of breast is best can be really detrimental for a women's mental health and not every woman can do it and I worry that it's already fetishized quite a lot and that whole mum's net community is fucking nuts about stuff like that very judgy on you know who does it and how long you do it for but the health benefits of breastfeeding are huge for the baby with all the nutrients to foster the bond between mother and child for the woman's own mental health and also much less importantly it can help shift baby weight which you know a lot of women feel conscious of when they have a baby my sister who's a midwife always says if you can it's great if you can't your mental health is more important Mm. so I mean it rose by six percent because some of these 10,000 women wanted the 200 pound shopping voucher. It, ma- it makes me feel very uncomfortable. I'm really say. conflicted on it. Mm. I'm really conflicted on it. A New Yorker short story named Cat Person has gone viral. If you're looking for a water cooler topic this week, this short story might be it. Cat Person tells the tale of a young woman named Margot who begins a flirtation with an old man named Robert. The story goes on to describe a disappointing date between the two, a strange but very familiar dynamic of power and role play begins to unfold, followed by some disappointing, quite graphic sex and ending with Margot losing interest in Robert. 
The story finishes sharply, with Robert spotting Margot out sometime later and asking why she ended things with him so abruptly and whether or not she is sleeping with the guy he saw her with in the bar and calls her a whore. Pandora, there's been a huge amount of commentary and hype around this story. It's really captured something very timely about a certain dynamic, I think, between a certain type of older man and a young woman. What did you make of it? On an artistic level, I just loved it as a modern short story. Mm. As you know, the short story is my favourite medium and this is an excellent example of a great one. And this was an excellent example of one. As fellow New Yorker writer and TV critic Emily Nussbaum summarised, it is witty, insightful and unpretentious. I totally loved this story. Some people have been slightly snobby about it, I think, saying, well, it's just quite an average short story and surely people have read a short story before. And sure, I don't think the writing style is hugely avant-garde or new and experimental in the way it uses language specifically, but it's got that great New Yorker fiction style of really clean prose, sharp dialogue, and most importantly, three-dimensional, very recognisable, fantastically formed characters. I also find that kind of riposte really funny, like when someone goes into an art gallery and goes, well, I could do that. Oh, I hate it's like, it. sure, okay, you could, but you didn't. And you didn't have the idea. And that, didn't make, and that doesn't make it invalid. Short stories really make an impact for me. They don't always make an impact. I'm struggling with Sour Heart, for example, as I revealed last week. But when they address a central, possibly quite obvious truth, then yeah, that makes a real impact for me. And I'd take that over surrealism any day. I think the reason it struck such a chord is I think most women have known a Robert in their lives and most women have been a Margot. A lot of women at some point have entered into a dynamic they don't feel hugely comfortable in because they want to accommodate the man or they feel they need the gaze of desire on them. It's like both the characters are getting off on playing... It's like a certain hackneyed heterosexual role and they have absolutely no respect for each other. He likes to think she's a young virgin. He kisses her head in a paternal way. He patronisingly jokes about her being too drunk or not studying hard enough as if she's kind of a childlike ingenue when she's 20. And in turn, she likes to think of him as this sort of older worldly beast of a man in fact I think one of the most intelligently observed passages of it and I've spoken to a lot of women who said exactly the same that this was the standout moment is the moment when she's having sex with him and she's not turned on at all so she has to think about him thinking about how amazing she is and marvelling at her youth and beauty that's the only way that she can kind of get off at that moment it's totally about their egos and I've never read that I've never Mm. read about that before. The way, as a young, curious, insecure woman, you can enter into this contract with an equally insecure older man who should really know better. Totally. I think it's really important, because conflation is not only lazy but inevitable, that we distinguish between this story, which is a telling of a woman feeling like it is her duty to place her pleasure secondary to a man, and the Me Too movement. Me Too is about assault, Um, forgotten female pleasure while something accepted by young women certainly in abundance when I was at university is a result of sexism but it is not the grave danger of Weinstein etc because this story has followed quite closely in relation to the first movement 
um, some people have tried to tie it together and whilst I think that leaves a climate where we are more receptive to a short story like this and the you know effects of sexism in society Definitely. on women these are very separate things so disclaimer or clarification if you will aside as a former dating columnist Dolly is this something you've written about before I'm actually racking my brains as to if you have trying to recall all these beautiful little columns of your youth I, d- I wrote about a bloke who snogged me and um, I think I still have PTSD from the incident because he sort of ate my face like the first bite of a burrito. Just, That's just chomped it right down. The, his top lip went over my nostrils, and I definitely hung there <laughs> slightly longer than I would because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. I wrote about that in my column, and then Farley said, "I'm dying." And then I didn't want to see him again, obviously, because I didn't want to see how that would translate into the you bedroom area. You didn't want to be the area. human burrito. Exactly. And I said... Imagine the... You'd have been a, a tortilla. Oh, God. And Farley said she thinks I should send him a letter telling him that what he did was unacceptable. I mean, I wouldn't probably waste your time. <laughs> anyway, back to cat person. There have been a lot of comment pieces from women around the issues of consent and coercion in dating and sex. The BBC journalist Felicity Morse wrote a fantastic piece for the debrief and a very brave piece in which she details moments in her younger life she's had sex when she really hasn't wanted to and exactly why that happened. She hasn't wanted to emasculate the guy, she didn't want to hurt his feelings and this is another part of the story that I think has again really struck a chord with a lot of women and I hope men too about how much we culturally enshrine and make sacred the male sexual pride and ego a lot of women myself included are absolutely or have been absolutely terrified of hurting a man's feelings perhaps it's because we're so used to seeing them as figures of authority but I think it might be more of a survival instinct because we're scared of what they might do if they feel exposed or embarrassed. But for whatever reason, it is something we really handle with care. When you think about the number of times you've lied to a man who's pursued you and said you had a boyfriend when you haven't because you don't want to say you're not interested and you don't want to hurt his feelings. Or even more intimately, think of the number of stories you hear from your friends about times when their sexual partner or boyfriend couldn't perform in bed and they turned really moody or nasty. It's a big problem for which the oppressive culture of toxic masculinity is just as much to blame and damages men just as much as women. And Cat Person really delves into that. There are moments in which she lets Robert behave badly or break her boundaries because she's so worried about hurting him. It's something you see very much in girls. Obviously, Lena Dunham is a slightly dirty word in um, cultural discussions of the now. But Adam Driver's character is an odious character Mm. uh, initially in that series, Mm. the role of the when he plays the role of her boyfriend, when he's just, you know, he's pummeling her. He really doesn't care if she's having good sex or not. But I think that's a good point you make about the fact that toxic masculinity um, damages men as much as women because this isn't just, a, you know, this isn't just women who are scared of being abused by a man. It's also, in many cases, a man feeling immense pressure to be this kind of sexual god. Totally. And what you have is 
an, a, a scenario where a lot of people, when they're younger, are both kind of miserable in the roles that have been imposed upon them by society. Exactly. I've read a lot of very similar stories of this ilk. Hayley Narman wrote a good one on Man Repeller. Ella Dawson, the social media editor at TED, wrote one on her site. I think it's something that happens much more when you are younger than we are now. Mm. I don't think either of us would be in that position, no pun intended, no. now. Yeah. Um, and to that end, Margot is 20 years old and a college student. And I would say that's the time where that was pretty rote. Oh, definitely. Um, women having terrible sex. I think it was more unusual for <laughs> women to be having great sex, yeah. with it, you know, when they felt really comfortable than it is for them to be having what Margot and Robert mm. enter into. Mm. Of course, there has been the inevitable backlash to this piece. Some people have said it's fatphobic because Margot's character has thoughts of slight disgust mm-hmm. and repulsion at Robert's body when he's undressed for the first time. I understand how this might be upsetting for an overweight person to read. Truly, I do understand that. But I must say, I really don't think the story is fatphobic. And I really think it's necessary in capturing a very delicate and specific relationship and thought process within that world, that fictional world. Did you think it was a fatphobic story? What I would say is, even if she is fatphobic, that's, you know, I think we can't get to the point where we're criticising the machinations of a, of a story in the same way that, you know, when you often read kind of, I don't know, American crime written by a man, there might be a, a woman who's got fake tits and it's literally written like that, you know, her fake tits were juggling mm. and her platinum blonde hair was doing this. Like, it's a story, it's mm. description. Mm. Um, no one said that these people had to be 100% PC. Mm. I don't really, un- I, I, I find that really odd. So what if it's fatphobic? Doesn't mean it's not an interesting story. You know, she. no one said that these were kind of morally and politically impeccable characters. So it's written from Margot's perspective and she is analysing the body that she is about to let penetrate her to be visceral about it. So I think it's just a very honest um, narrative about the thoughts you have when you're evaluating a partner's body for the first time. And to be honest, her voice makes it quite clear that the soft, hairy fold of skin wouldn't bother her if she fancied him. It's when he beetle scuttles off to the loo with the condom falling off after a bout of spectacularly bad porno-style sex that she's looking at him with revulsion, but she's Mm. not looking at him with revulsion because he's soft around the edges. She's looking at him with revulsion because she realises that they are not and will never be well-matched mates even though it's not written first person it's written in the third person it's from margot's point of view so there is this honesty about the ego involved i mean we both loved that bit where margot admits that she's being spectacularly egotistic imagining how hot robert must find her in fact you know it's imagining what robert thinks of her young febrile body that allows her to kind of go through with the intercourse um and i think that's pretty honest and totally riveting to read because Mm. sex is fucking weird we so rarely know the inner workings of anyone's mind you know you can know everything about a friend but you don't have a clue what they think about when they have sex because it might be a bit weird no no if you took each other through that process and also all the great rows in the world are about religion and sex pretty much so you know when it comes to sex it's this fascinating field to explore and I was I was riveted to to be allowed access to this albeit fictional moment and in a workings of sexuality I was with the journalist and friend of the high lows Laura Snapes yesterday and she said something really smart on this subject going back to the fatphobic thing 
we can't read this short story as if it were an essay or a piece of journalism. That's exactly what I mean when we're criticising a character. Yeah, it's a piece of fiction and we can't hold the inner dialogue of a fictional character's head to moral account as if she were a journalist or an MP or a public figure. Absolutely. It's completely insane. Everyone has had judgmental or unsavoury thoughts about their fellow man. I've probably had about five this morning. (laughs) The whole point and profundity of fiction is that it can access these areas of the human condition and the inner workings of a human mind and expose these truths that would otherwise never or rarely be explored in non-fiction or reporting or reality. I think we're in a really dangerous place if we lose all nuance in art and storytelling because we're worried that all the characters and the inner worlds of the respective characters have to be supposedly morally clean. Absolutely. And I think on the subject of interior monologues, you know, the interior monologue of most people is utterly, utterly vile. And I don't think that's a problem. I think it's a problem when this leaks out to the exterior. We shouldn't share that kind of stuff. Mm. And that's what I think we see a lot of now on social media is people seem to think that we've kind of created this slightly permissive society where you can actually just kind of spew out your poisonous interior thoughts onto someone else's Mm. platform, Mm. account, page because you're not being held visibly accountable. And not only is it cowardice, but it just goes back to that adage that if... You don't have anything nice to say. Don't say it at all, except in fiction. That's why you can't say it. A Twitter account has been set up to document some of the most hilarious, ignorant and baffled tweets of men reacting to the story called At Men Cat Person. (laughs) The reaction, I would say, from where I've been standing has been more strong and all-encompassing from women, which would make sense as it's more from the point of view and mindset of Margot. Journalist Amy Jones touched on why this has been more poignant and resonated more with women in a fantastic piece for the pool which I'm going to quote from now do men often get into a car and not know whether they'll get out alive do their friends instinctively know to surround them in a bar to protect them from a dodgy one night stand how many men go on dates wondering whether they'll meet the love of their life be murdered or be called a whore for ignoring a string of texts afterwards these things will happen to some men definitely they happen to almost all women Yes, definitely. And if she hadn't been called a whore and she'd left, she would have been called a cock tease. I can, playing devil's avocado, I can see why men reading it probably wouldn't, you know, feel delightful afterwards because it is a story where Margot comes out much better. Mm. It's not a particularly pleasant read for men. Mm. But I think the reason why Margot's story is creating such waves is because you you read a lot about the clingy, insecure, mentally fragile, bonkers, quote-unquote, woman who shags a man and then wants to marry him. But you don't read that much about the slightly creepy, miserable, older man who really wants to pursue something with a college girl who's not that into it. So it's more just, it's a dynamic we haven't seen explored and that makes people feel uncomfortable. And also, I think the reason people feel relieved to read this is anyone who's watched pornography in their life has watched a woman... Being pounded. ...doing this performance that Margot did. So, you know, I think that's another reason why there's a sense of relief. You know, if I'd read this in my early 20s or my late teens, I think it would have really changed the way that I conducted myself with boys. So I think it's a really, really useful piece. We would love to hear if you're a man who's read it. I must say the men I know have responded just as I have to it. In fact, it was a man who sent it to me. They really loved it and found it very confronting. Are you a man who's read Cat Person and you have some thoughts? 
or are you a woman? We'd love to hear from all of you. You can email us on thehiloshow at gmail.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Support for the Hilo comes from Papier. We are thrilled to have Papier as a sponsor as Pandora and I love their products, but we're particularly thrilled this week to be telling you about Papier's personalised stationery sets as they are our Christmas presents to each other. I've actually got you another Christmas present as well. Oh, have you? I wrote on your Instagram that you'd spoilt it slightly. Did you see that? Yes, I did. We'll see why. <laughs> personalised stationery makes the perfect gift this Christmas, whether it's the lined notebooks for the studious, which are priced at £12.99, the sketchbooks for the arty, priced at £8.99, or the note cards, which are £17.99 for a set of ten. We're both getting each other the classic border set, which comes in a range of really stylish colours with our names printed at the top. And as you can gather, these are not a surprise. Not both of our names, to be clear. <laughs> this isn't a round robin from a married couple situation. We some that say, the high low though. Oh, that's a good idea. Picked from hundreds of designs by top designers, including Luke Edward Hall and Mother of Pearl, as well as iconic brands such as the V&A and Moomin. We're both pretty taken with the Luke Edward Hall one, aren't we, Panda? Oh yes, I love Luke Edward Hall. He's a young interior designer that is doing really, really well at the moment. The millennial pink and botanicals are right up your street, Dolly. Yeah, every design can be personalised and everything is printed on lovely high-quality papier paper. Hilo listeners can enjoy a 15% discount across all Papier products when they use Hilo, H-I-G-H-L-O-W in capitals at the checkout. Thanks very much to Papier. A former Facebook exec has given a speech at Stanford University in the States where he warned that social media is ripping society apart. Chamath Palihapitiya, who joined Facebook in 2007 and became VP for user growth, i.e. luring more of us to use the platform, before leaving in 2011, has said that he feels tremendous guilt about the company that he helped build. He says that it helped cultivate a climate where there is no civil discourse, no cooperation, misinformation and mistruth. I listened to part of the speech on Radio 4 on Tuesday and I was just riveted by what he was saying and it's not just something that affects the first world it affects the richest to the poorest in myriad different ways here's a little excerpt that i found particularly arresting about what happened when a whatsapp hoax ripped through a village in india people were like afraid that their kids were going to get kidnapped etc and then there were these lynchings that happened as a result where people were like vigilante running around they think they found the person and they I mean, seriously? Like, that's what we're dealing with. You know, imagine, like, when you take that to the extreme, where, you know, bad actors can now manipulate large swaths of people to do anything you want. I found this speech incredibly chilling. We all know this stuff anyway. Mm -hmm. We all know how social media and living 
a digital virtual existence alongside a real flesh and blood existence can be highly destructive. But there's also always a part of me that shrugs off that notion and thinks, chill out, it's fine, it's like chocolate, (laughs) have it in moderation and it won't cause any huge damage. You know, people who say all that other stuff are hysterical or conspiratorial. But when the words are coming from the man with the intel, the man who designed these online worlds in which we spend the majority of our lives, Mm. that's even more chilling and you can't ignore that. This is a slightly clumsy comparison, but it's like there's this doner kebab shop in Camden (laughs) that every time I walk past it, the man who who cuts the meat and works in the shop slices off these ribbons of grey meat and he looks absolutely disgusted. And I always think if I were a customer at this place, I would not be eating the meat if the man who cooks it pulls a face like that. I don't think that's a clunky comparison at all. I think that's brilliant, Thanks, actually. <laughs> and I'd say for his own sake, he should just slap a smile. <laughs> this is not, of course, the first time we've discussed the danger of social media. It's something I personally have written about quite a lot. It's not even the first time one of the head honchos of a social networking site has come out to deride it. Sean Parker, who helped create the like button at Facebook... Um, has described the platform as knowingly exploiting the vulnerability in human psychology. He recently compared Snapchat to heroin and said that he uses blockers to prevent himself from spending too much time online and on social media. There have been loads of stories about top tech execs, including Melinda and Bill Gates, who banned their kids from having smartphones until the age of 14. A lot of the discussions in regards to social media, revolve around dopamine. For those of you that aren't familiar with dopamine, it is a chemical neurotransmitter that gives you an instant hit. So when you like something or receive a like, you get this little jolt of pleasure and it's addictive and you want to do it again. But with the highs come the lows and like a sugar crash, you're also left um, craving another hit. So it makes you feel quite desperate, quite brittle, quite fragile. And you can actually sometimes feel that hit. I've actually physically felt that of course you can it's when someone goes back in and refreshes their picture and sees that it's got loads of likes I actually recently wrote a piece for a glossy which is yet to come out so I can't actually give any details about the changes I had made on a personal level with Instagram just for an example I took a two week break in September and I now have a few rules with myself like trying to post not more than every other day sometimes I break that if I'm away somewhere lovely Mm. but I try and not post a picture more than every other day so that I'm not being too active in what I'm putting out there having been very active on the platform before I try and limit my time on Instagram to one scroll in the morning one scroll in the evening I know that sounds plenty but Count how many times you do it per day and you'll you'll soon see yeah. how few actually being quite ascetic checking in the morning and the evening. And I've made overall general changes to my phone, not, not just Instagram. My phone goes to bed before me around 9pm. My phone gets up later than me, normally an hour later, so around 830 I airplane my phone a lot. I mute my WhatsApp a lot. I read a brilliant book called How to Break Up With Your Phone by Catherine Price, which I think comes out in February. Mm. And if you have problems with your phone or social media or anything like that, I cannot recommend this book enough. You just need to create distance. Yeah, it's exact. I mean, I'm still learning. I think you're ahead of me. I really need to get more of a routine and some rules in place and some boundaries with it. And as you said, the key as it is with anything as I learn as I get older, is that with anything that's pleasurable in life, be it sex, alcohol, pizza, pizza. it's just about balance. Otherwise, you're addicted to the thing. And to be addicted means that the thing has become bigger than you, that Mm. you are powerless to it. And I think a lot of us 
me included, have that tendency with social media. It's as if it's a sort of force that we have no control over, which just is not the case. It's a ludicrous way to think that way. For example, yesterday I was on deadline for a piece that I was finding quite hard to write. And in my head, I thought, okay, you can check and scroll through Twitter in an hour once you've finished it. Then I got stuck on a particularly difficult sentence and I found my hand just typing in the Twitter homepage address. And in my head, I just thought, oh, well, I suppose this is happening now. I'm going to spend 10 minutes scrolling through Twitter and not write this piece for a little while longer. But it's almost as if my head was convincing myself that my hand was working as a law unto itself that I had no control over. A research fellow at Oxford called Bernie Hogan was actually really interesting on Chamath's story. And you could say quite reassuring. He said that um, technological moral panics, quote unquote, have existed ever since the dawn of technology. And he gave what he described as quite a gendered example of when the at-home telephone was installed. And there was this real fear that women would spend too much time cotching on the blower, gassing, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, presumably cooking or cleaning, as, as was their role. And the same thing then happened with the creation of the internet, with email. You know, every time these things happen, we have this technological mm. moral panic arguably society has not kind of the ructions in society have not been so pervasive and more just from a kind of time consuming point of view as with social media i don't really use facebook i don't think it's that popular with our generation personally i stay on it for birthday alerts as i never remember i don't actually even remember my own husband's i just know that it is one of two days um that's not to say i don't think facebook's dangerous i think politically it's actually the worst for example, that Russian firm that spent $100,000 on fake ads to spread in misinformation last year that ultimately aided the Trump campaign mm. and the damage that Facebook did in marking a Rohingya group on Facebook as a dangerous insurgency when the Muslim minority is being ethnically cleansed in Myanmar. What social media platform do you think is the most dangerous, Dolly, both personally and societally? Well, for both, I think Instagram can be really dangerous this is an embarrassing thing to expose but in the spirit of true openness on this subject I will expose it I've had to really have a word with myself this year about Instagram I hadn't realized how dependent I'd become on it I had one particular week where I had loads and loads and loads of work going on and I was just on my computer non-stop I was either writing or I was filing or I was posting about stuff I'd written or I was pitching to editors and in my head, I was really miserable. And in my head, I kept thinking to myself, I just want to be in the real world. I don't want to be writing until 2am in front of my computer. I just want to be with my friends. I hate this online existence I've created for myself. And then finally, at the end of the week on the Friday night, all my work was done and I had dinner with some friends. And within half an hour, where did I find myself but going to the loo so I could check my emails and scroll through my Twitter and Instagram. And it was a really sad moment. And I just thought to myself, you have to get a handle on this because you'll be forever dissatisfied if the real world isn't enough. And then when you're online, you're craving the real world. And I'm sure I was only doing that because I'd had a whole week of nonstop waiting for emails from editors and comments and likes and shares. And I had unconsciously become slightly dependent on that that high and that process. I think that's really honest of you to reveal that. You absolutely won't be alone in that. I have 100% had periods of that 
I can honestly hand on heart now saying I don't have that relationship with Instagram. But that came for me from a real point of resistance mm. because I have a modest following on Instagram. I was so used to people thinking that I was more obsessed with it than I was. Yeah. And it made me so angry that it really helped me develop a relationship with it that was slightly a fuck you to all those people. Defensive. Who thought thought yeah. that it was superseding my work or that I placed you know more value on it than I did other things. Yeah. And I've always maintained, and I still maintain, Twitter is where my heart belongs. The mm. stories I uncover and, and, the, and the people that I follow and the ideas that come to me. I don't get ideas from Instagram unless it's like a bathroom tile. So I think for me, the most dangerous actually is WhatsApp. Nancy Jo Sales says in her amazing book, American Girls, The Secret Life of American Teenagers, that girls literally exchange thousands of messages every day. It definitely gives me the most anxiety. I have an actual fear of group messages. I feel a bit sick, honestly, when I think about the one that will be set up for my NCT group. I don't want to be rude, but I also don't want to join. Let's hope they don't listen. Well, if they listen, then maybe they'll get an insight into the fact that it's not me wanting to be rude. I just mm. get such anxiety about being answerable to yet another group of people. I'm exactly the and same. And I'm not the kind of person, unlike my brother on our family WhatsApp groups, to ignore messages. I feel that obligation really keenly. I will always reply. And it's why I airplane my phone and mute it so much because I it honestly is, for me, my worst thing. That said, as you were saying, I think for many people, it's Instagram that's the most dangerous from a mental health point of view those feelings of FOMO and inferiority which makes for that very brittle sense of self I visualise us all as a sort of row of paper dolls creasing in the wind being punctured by the slightest of cuts like not getting enough likes on a picture mm. or someone writing something a bit snarky like on holiday again and mm. then you spend the rest of your holiday in a, in a spin that one friend disapproves on how you've spent your fucking annual holiday day allowance. I mean it's madness but that's why I think it's really interesting and what I was saying about from richer to poorer is that you can look at social media from a rich privileged first world society mental health point of view like we've just been discussing now with Instagram and WhatsApp and then you can look at it on a larger scale, a political point of view, like Facebook. And then it can be on a small rural scale, like in India with, mm. with WhatsApp. There were really many different ways and layers in which social media is dangerous. And actually, that's why I find it so fascinating, to be honest. I think that's so beautiful, that metaphor that, that you've just conjured of the paper dolls. And it's so true. As you said, Instagram is dangerous if you become solely dependent on your esteem and self-worth coming from the validation of strangers. As we all know, you can only get that, that proper strong sense of self and rooting from within yourself and more importantly, from your actions in daily life. That's how you get your self-esteem. But I agree, WhatsApp is a specific type of hell. As you know, I hate it. I've now turned off all my receipts so people can't see when I'm on or offline because I found it so stressful. You're just quite hot or cold with WhatsApp. At some points, you'll have a day where you are loving it. So I jump on board <laughs> and we go all day. You jump on the WhatsApp train. I, ju I jump on the WhatsApp train and we ride along merrily together and then you go silent for four days and I realise that you've moved your you've moved over to email so that's, that's, so, that's so stressful I just catch you on different mediums sometimes sometimes you're more into Twitter so I'll just talk to you there I'm sorry I do that sounds like I follow you around in fact I've even been known to direct message you on Instagram you that's, have that's less frequent to be fair I hate direct message on Instagram please don't send me a direct message on Instagram um, I'm really bad 
bad at checking it, anyone who's listening, but very good on email. I'm comforted by a stat from DigiSpy that I read a few months ago that says that 63% of teenagers wish that social media didn't exist. That leaves me with the hope that the next generation will cultivate a more abstract relationship with social networking. That said, that's not what I see when I read Nancy Jo Sales' book. So different stories from from different spheres there. Yeah, sometimes I wonder if we'll look back on this moment in time, maybe in a period of 10 years, maybe a period of 100 or a few hundred years, and we'll see social media as a strange anomaly in time and we'll study it as a kind of anthropologically bizarre period where we conflated the virtual and the real. I think we'll look back on this time and we won't believe that this was ever our reality because it's not virtual enough. The more people who come out and decry the effects of social networking on society and admit that they knew what they were doing to the human psyche and the brain's hardwiring, the more we will self-educate. We might live in a world of increasing augmented reality. I don't quite know how Dolly's going to cope with that. But I think that there will be much more education around the subject and barriers and boundaries, perhaps even governmental policy. I know that the government are looking into social media platforms having to take responsibility in crimes um, Mm. bullying things like that because there's so little policy around it that said I'm going to be strict with my daughter whatever is around when she is a preteen a couple of weeks ago on the high low we showed might have even been last week we shared the stat that most parents let their children join social media platforms under the recommended age of 13 and that most of them aren't bothered enough to enforce or to regulate their kids use or the age at which they join and well that won't be me I'm not saying I'm going to be a Melinda and a Bill Gates and I do believe in privacy but my child is not getting a phone age six and she is not joining Instagram age nine end of yes and Auntie Dolly is going to be bringing her the old Rubik's Cubes and the flower pressing books and the teddies instead of iPads so don't you worry about that It's now time for Ask the Hilo but believe it or not we've been gassing for so long there's no time but don't despair because there's going to be a bumper issue of the Ask the Hilo section tell us a little bit more Dolly I'm going to comb through the inbox (laughs) and I'm going to find the highs and the lows and package them up nicely with a package bow. Package them up nicely. Bow. And we're going to do a bumper section, as Pandora says, of answering your questions and dilemmas in the Christmas special. The Christmas special comes out on Thursday, December the 21st. And the New Year's special, because we never miss a week, despite what some of you say, will be on Thursday, December the 28th, with a very special guest. Thank you very much to everyone who listened to episode 38 of the Hilo or any of the episodes of the Hilo. We're not fussy. Dig in wherever you see fit, <laughs> like a Christmas buffet. Thank you very much to Acast for letting us use your studio. You can tweet the Hilo at the Hilo Show or you can email us show at gmail.com. Bye. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.